0: I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm very happy to welcome to the show my next guests, Jane Fisher and Jenna Kerner, who are co-founders and co-CEOs of Harper Wild. Jane and Jenna, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having us.
0: All right. I'm going to first... To chat with you. Great. Okay. So I'm going to do my best to, I know I'm going to get confused because I got Jane and Jenna on the line, but I'm going to do my best to direct questions to one or the other of you. But if it's the wrong person, if someone else is better suited, just step right in. Um, I'm going to first point our listeners to your your website. So it's harperwild.com. Actually, having just said that, I'm now going to leave open to which of you wants to give me the elevator pitch. Jane or Jenna, give me the elevator pitch for Harper-Wild.
1: Yeah, this is Jane. I can do it. Um, So Harper-Wild, we take the BS out of bra shopping, or as we like to call it, raw hopping. Um, And this idea came about super organically um, when Jenna and I first got to Wharton. Um, We actually were in a class together, and we knew we were on the same team, so we knew we worked really well together. the class had nothing to do with what ultimately became Harper Wild, but the idea came about because I was sitting in David Bell's Intro to Marketing class, learning about a lot of other direct-to-consumer businesses um, that were taking commodity products like eyeglasses and mattresses and making them more fairly priced and easier to buy online. And it just hit me as a woman who was willing to spend on myself. I had nice jeans and nice shoes. Um And I was sitting there with a bra that was probably five years past its expiration date. And so I had this idea that, you know, why not bras as well? It feels really weird that they're the one commodity that half the population needs that isn't being served in this same way right now. Um, And so I immediately thought to go to Jenna because I knew we worked well together. And so I told her the idea, and that was about two years ago now. And we decided to build a company that would make it easier to buy more fairly priced bras every day, everyday bras online without the hassle.
0: All right, Jane, good job. And I'm going to circle back on your opening joke because it's it was a little subtle and it was a little fast, but it's also on your <laughs> website. So you take the BS out of bra shopping. If you take the B and the S out of bra shopping, you get raw hopping. And that that's mm-hmm. uh, that's very cute. And in fact, the the, uh, one of the things I'm going to ask circle back on is where you come up with all this cute stuff. It's, it's uh, the cute marketing stuff. Cause it is, it is pretty awesome. Okay. Jenna, uh, w- let me turn to you and ask the question. Uh, okay. How do you take the BS out of bra shopping? Walk us through the user experience.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, we do that three main ways. Um, the first and one of the biggest is really our free home try on model. So, um, you know, when Jane and I sat back and said, what really are the pain points um, in the experience of buying bras or in the bra industry? You know, it wasn't really around the product itself. Rather, women were really frustrated with, you know, the process of going in store, being uncomfortably measured by someone, um, you know, sorting through hundreds of options. And we really thought, how can we make that experience better? Um, so the free home try-on model, we allow women to take home um, three bras. Um, any size, style, or color that they want and try it on absolutely free so they don't have to put any money down. And then once they decide what they like, they're able to send back everything else, and we only charge them for what they keep. So the first is the home try-on. The second is simplifying the options. So as I mentioned, both in-store and online, um, most retailers offer um, upwards of 300 options for bras. And when we really looked at it, you know, there's very similar um, shapes and styles that, uh, you know, it's only complicated by the polka dots or the embellishments or um, the the bejazzling that's hanging off of it. And we said, what if we could just make it really, really simple for women to find what they need? So if you need a strapless bra, we have one option for you. If a push-up, then we have an option for that or an unlined bra. And the third and final is... um, Fairly priced option. So um, we made we when once we did the research while we were um, at Wharton and realized that the margins were enormous in the industry. We realized that we could make a really great bra and sell it at a fair price. So all of our products are priced at thirty-five dollars, which is um, about half of what you would find as a similar uh, quality product in other retailers.
0: Okay, so uh, simple and and affordable and uh, home try on are sort of the three pillars here and I want I want to just push push on the the simple and the styles thing a little bit uh, you know the the 800 pound gorilla in the industry is Victoria's secret and their position is all about uh, it being super sexy and about the you know the the materials and and the way it the object itself actually looks not not the way it looks on the woman necessarily but just the lace and the and the embellishments and so forth you've gotten rid of all of that does that mean you're in a different segment or does it mean that they are actually mis misfocused they're they're not focused on what their customers actually want
1: we would say that it's The latter, actually. And um, when you look at the parent company, L Brands, and their stock, it's really reflecting that. It's Mm -hmm. rapidly declining. And the analysts, uh, I think a recent analyst report that came out about it said that 60% of customers, so these are people who have opted into buying the Victoria's Secret products, find the branding to be really false or forced. So I think that's at the crux of it. it, is that they're not, adapting to what the modern woman really wants and the modern woman, you know, she's career oriented, she's confident and driven and She has 16 bras in her drawer and some of them might be the lacy ones, but she's wearing two of them 90% of the time, which means when she wakes up at 6am and is about to go spend a 12 hour day consulting banking as a doctor or lawyer, she's reaching for that comfortable, simple option, Mm -hmm. not the ones that you're seeing at Victoria's Secret. And she certainly doesn't want to stand behind a brand that's really over sexualizing women. Uh, She wants to stand for one that empowers them.
0: Yeah. Um, Jenna so I I looked at your your bios and you both have pretty similar bios you have you are you are you know uh, high quality undergraduate institutions but not in say engineering or product design or business and then you're both in uh, both consultants and nothing in those backgrounds would suggest you have, any knowledge about how to make a bra. So uh, give us give us what you did after you had the epiphany that you could apply some of these ideas from David Bell's class to the bra industry. What did you do next to validate? Well, uh, let me just say, what did you do next?
2: Yeah, yeah so, I mean, you, you really hit on the fact that we did not know anything about the bra industry or about how to manufacture a bra. Um, but what's interesting is I think that was honestly one of the... Um, uh, one of the, our biggest advantages, really, um, because when we started talking to people, you know, what anyone would start doing, all right, let's learn as much as we can. Um, and some of the people who had, you know, 30 or 40 years in the bra industry uh, told us to drop what we were doing and run in the other direction because uh, a bra is actually one of the hardest garments to make. Um, if you wanted someone to make it in the US, um, you should be going to a wedding dress designer because it's so complicated. There can be over 20 or 30 pieces in a bra. So, um, fortunately, you know, a bit of our naivete helped us push through some of um, the advice that we were getting. And we just started emailing um, Chinese manufacturers and manufacturers abroad just to get some idea of, like, how much it really costs to make this product. Mm -hmm. Um, And our approach was twofold. So let's figure out, you know— The margins are high let's figure out what we could actually produce a bra for and then let's see if um, women in our demographic actually want what we think you know is of interest to them so on the one side we just were emailing as many manufacturers as we could get uh, get a handle of and trying to get some prices from them and then on the other side we started you know talking to our peers and our colleagues um, and we ended up doing focus groups or one-on-one interviews with um, over 100 women to really understand you know, how do you shop for bras today? What brands do you like? And we really left that first semester realizing that the opportunity um, was enormous, both on uh, the manufacturing side and in terms of what we could produce, as well as, you know, meeting the demand side. Um, And given that a lot of the women were really frustrated with options out there today.
0: Yeah. Um, Jane, let me ask you to follow up on something Jenna says. You talked to these 100, 100 women and and. I can imagine there being 50 or so attributes that surround this this product and this experience that women might care about. And I guess, can you characterize whether most of the pain was around the experience or was most of the pain around the product itself?
1: It's a wonderful question because it got at why we thought there was a still an opportunity in the market, even though there were some startups starting to pop up, Mm -hmm. um, even two years ago. And what we found was all of those companies were focusing on innovating on the product. Mm. And all we heard from women was the complete opposite. It was about the experience. And so we, I mean, we never heard from a woman once there just isn't a bra out there for me, please innovate on it, make it different. There are thousands and thousands of bras out there. That's what the problem is. It's sorting through them. What it really came down to was it was about sorting through all those options finding the right one for her and one that was at a reasonable price those were those were the bits the price and the experience um, and so that's where we decided to innovate
0: yeah and I, re- I really want to underscore this point and and I think you did exactly the right thing which is you did a bunch of open-ended interviews to understand where the where the pain was clearly part of this the playbook came from Warby Parker I know Dave Bell likes to use Warby Parker in about every other sentence. So, almost certainly, uh, a lot of the playbook comes from Warby Parker, but there's a critical difference here, which is Warby Parker. This is you know, the Warby Parker product, is eyeglasses. You're putting it on your face, on the outside of your, of, of your apparel. And so it, the, the the fashion element to it, the product part of it, is actually super important, and you were able to deviate from that and say, yeah, product's important, but it's not the most important part of this experience, and, and, and it's the non-product attributes that were really where the opportunity is. So I think that's a generalizable principle. The generalizable principle is really understand your customer, and it may not be the product. It might be the non-product elements of the experience that are the opportunity
2: yeah and just building off what you said carl i think what was interesting is we when we were doing those interviews i mean we really took a design thinking approach to it and Mm -hmm. you know rather than starting with surveys we did these in-depth interviews and really tried to uncover why people were were feeling certain things or certain emotions and i think that's what you know sort of drove a lot of the business model in terms of simplicity because a lot of people questioned okay you only have you know a very limited product set but we were very confident in that decision because what we kept hearing was um, this sense of being overwhelmed. And as we continued to dig in more and more of really what was fueling that, um, there were a lot of different things. And one of them was being completely overwhelmed by the options, both in-store and online. So um, there was a lot that we learned by you know, not only relying on the survey-type data, but really sitting one-on-one with people and um, digging into why they felt you know, the way they did about a certain process.
0: Uh, Jenna, I want to circle back on the factory question. So this is it's it's a really nice situation that you've identified that the product itself doesn't have to be a breakthrough. It doesn't have to be new science. It can be a good bra from a high quality manufacturer. And to that to to that extent, it makes the problem a lot easier on the sourcing side. But maybe you can talk through a little bit if, to our aspiring apparel entrepreneurs. Typically, how do you find a factory? You mentioned email. And then uh, maybe more significantly, how do you work with that factory in order to realize the design vision?
1: Yeah, um, this is Jane. I can take it. Um, And so typically what we heard to be the case was you would start designing and manufacturing domestically. And then once you'd reached enough scale to produce at the minimums that um, international suppliers require, then you would move offshore. Mm-hmm. Um, bras was a little interesting because actually the type of bra that we produce, which is just a standard foam cup, underwire bra, is not produced domestically. So we had to start offshore. Interesting. So we had to yeah. To start with the high minimums and some of the complexities that you don't face until later down the line, um, the benefit being we don't have to we don't have to change suppliers when we scale. Uh, we can scale with our supplier today, uh, but it was a little complex in the beginning. And the way that that we did it was we designed um, domestically. So we found our designer. We had a few designers. I actually was. At an internship in New York over the summer between my two years in Wharton and I'd go on my lunch breaks from this PE fund to a designer um, and we'd be sketching out the bra designs um, and we took those designs and we um, we took them to ultimately what became the manufacturer and the way we found the manufacturer we found the designer, by the way, through a database called Maker's Row, which allows you to sort through designers and manufacturers based on location, what they produce, a lot of different attributes. Um, And then how we found our manufacturer was actually through a connection that Jenna had. Uh, She worked at a wearable technology company that worked with this factory that conveniently was one of the largest lingerie manufacturers in the world. Uh, But even if she hadn't worked there... Once we had done a bit of research, uh, we could see that they were one of the top factories to work with. What was hard to do was to convince this factory who produced for Nike and Gap and Victoria's Secret and Calvin Klein to work with our two-person startup. Um, and so we definitely had some ups and downs working our way in there, but we ultimately convinced them that it would be worth it to work with us because of the, the growth that we were going to have Um and today, to answer your question, how are we working with them, um, we find it's really, really critical to have an in-person relationship. So it was actually after the first few weeks that we had been talking to them and formalized the relationship that Jen and I decided to get on a plane and fly over there and meet them in person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that just made a world of difference. It, it changed the conversations um, that we were having with them. It allowed us to get some peace of mind that everything was ethical, um, because we had some fears about moving into manufacturing. And now today, I mean, they visited us in LA, um, where we're now set up and running. We've gone back over there two more times. I was just there two weeks ago, overseeing some of the production. Um, and I think it's important to just maintain that in-person relationship, especially when you're literally across the world from each other, and important to kind of be there to see the products being made to really understand all that goes into it.
0: Yeah, I, I want to underscore something you said. It, it is really hard to get a big factory with great capabilities and low costs to take a chance on a, on, a, on a couple of entrepreneurs. And But I think that enthusiasm, personal touch, and and persistence really can pay off there. And so I really like what you just said, which is you got on a plane, you started the dialogue, but then you went on the got on a plane and built a personal relationship. A lot of these companies are private companies. They're often you you often can meet the owners or, or people who have an ownership stake, and they often will take a chance on an entrepreneur because they remember being entrepreneurs. And so, mm-hmm. and so it's it's a it's a great lesson. So don't you know for our listeners, don't think you can't access uh, great production capabilities. Uh, but you you just have to you you have to treat that seriously it's a project um i want to turn to the and and also i want to underscore something uh i think it was jane you said how you find your designer just let me make sure i got that makersrow.com right mm-hmm. yeah good good yeah. Re- good resource i get that question all the time and now i know now i know what to what to, what to mm-hmm. say um uh, to just to follow up uh, on this on this question of getting started jenna maybe you could speak to this question what what did you have to commit to before you could actually test the idea i mean the problem with bras you can't really prototype that product and just get started right you have to make a commitment to a product to at least a minimum production order in order to even test whether the dogs will eat the dog food so maybe talk through what kind of commitment that is and how you thought about that
2: yeah i think that um you know it's interesting we jane and i struggled with this um our first year at wharton saying okay you know this isn't just a web service what are we going to do and how can we test it and how can we basically convince ourselves that this is a great opportunity so um, we actually devised a test Um, we took some inspiration from the founders of rent the runway we had read the the case study in one of Mm -hmm. our classes and Um, So what we did was we bought 400 bras of existing retailers. Mm -hmm. Um, We knew we wanted to do something quick. We couldn't design our own, you know, that quickly. And so we bought these 400 bras um, and we invited 50 women over and basically tested out the whole business model of free home try-on. And. Uh, We had 50 women at Jane's house. We set up the five different styles so that um, women could see the front and back, but they weren't allowed to touch since you can't touch online and we needed the e-commerce. And then we gave everyone, you know, the option to opt into the free home try on, which would entail them taking home um either three or five bras since we were also testing whether or not you know which number we needed Um, they could take it home for a week we took down their phone numbers so that we could venmo charge them at the end just as we would take down a credit card online and then um, they could try on the bras for a week and then at the end of the week we had a drop-off point in huntsman hall and we had a drop-off point um in center city where people lived, so that you know we tried to make it similar to a ups drop-off uh, and then we charged people afterwards. So wow. what we saw was, uh, yeah, it was, you know, we were able to do uh, a lot, and get a ton of data. Um, we felt very strongly that you can't necessarily just trust what someone says they're going to do in a survey. We really wanted to see people take an action and not only that, but put money behind something. So we saw 80% of people opt in to the free home try on and then 50% of those people converted to purchase. Um, And then after the fact, you know, whenever we got returned and all the bras left over the inventory, we just returned it back. So Mm -hmm. it ended up being completely free, um, which was great as we were grad students. Um, And we just had amazing data that, you know, we saw the demand for the business model. Um, We could see which products women actually kept and we could follow up with them as to why. Um, And that was really the first stage gate that, um, you know, we wanted to pass in terms of, then going out and raising some money from friends and family to design our own product.
0: Yeah. Wow. It's, It's such a great example. It's what's often called the Wizard of Oz prototype uh in, in the entrepreneur world, which means you don't you don't you all you see is the user experience. You don't see the little man behind the curtain who's actually pulling all the levers. And you guys were able to mock it up in the apartment without building anything, no tech at all. So it's it's such a great example. I wanna uh, change the subject just a little bit. I promised our listeners I'd ask you about this. The I, I'm very impressed by Your ability to do, you know, engaging, scrappy, viral marketing. It's it's you've got a great brand personality on your website, and you launched with a a a a video that 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 did have a viral quality, went viral, and maybe you could talk a little bit about what you thought, how you did that uh, on limited resources, creating a video that that was cheeky and interesting, and that you hoped would go viral
1: yeah it's a a really good question um it was so it actually came from two places one was we knew from the start we wanted to inject humor into the brand it was something that was important to jenna and me but it was also really easy to do in this space Um, and this, this is the video the concept for it actually came from having to pitch to a lot of men who rightfully so had never been bra shopping and being the good Wharton MBA students that we were, we showed up with all of the data and the research and the statistics on how this was a $16 billion industry with enormous margins and one dominant player. And, you know, how many bras a woman buys on average every year, how much she spends. And it, our pitch just kept falling flat. And we were like, this is this is kind of crazy. This is like a really awesome business idea, objectively. <laughs> and why, why is no one kind of paying attention? Why aren't, why aren't these men listening? Um, and, what we found was we flipped the conversation to say, okay, what if for one pair of boxers you had to spend three hours searching through hundreds of options and pay $50, 60 $70? And it completely changed. We, we you know, we said in a little bit of a cuter way than that, and it completely changed the conversation. And what we realized was even – even though men were obviously not aware of it, women were kind of taking it for granted that they had to go through this. And we could show it in a funny light to kind of highlight the fact that we don't have to go through all this. There's, there must be a better way. Um, and so that was kind of the inspiration for the video. And also knowing that we wanted to bring humor to, to the um, to the brand, we started working on it really early on, pretty much um right after we did that trial event, we raised some money and we started designing the products. And also we started designing this video. Um, And honestly, the way that we were able to do it in a scrappy, low cost way was getting people to understand what the mission of the business was, which was really about empowering women. It was much more than just bras. And when People within the creative space started to hear that. They just started to gravitate towards it, and were willing to kind of do things at cost to support a brand that was standing for so much more um, in this industry. And all so, right,
0: I'm going to have to. I'm really sorry I have to interrupt yeah. you because we're out of time. But but that's a great story, and I'm just going to encourage all our listeners to go check out the video. And you can find it anywhere. But if you just look on Harper Wild website or on or just on YouTube even. Um, so uh, Jane and Jenna, thanks so much for making the time. Super interesting. Yeah, thanks, for thanks so much. It's great having you, I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud, for a night